Hey everybody, Josh Sheridan here with the Barely Legal Podcast. On today's show, I have Michael Sinclair, who is a, I don't know what if I'd call him a multimedia artist, an artist, a, a mogul, a producer, a director. He kind of wears many hats. I was uh, lucky enough to kind of learn of him through uh, one of my guests from last week, uh, Andrew Domestico, whose episode actually uh, airs today. Uh, they're kind of partners and have worked together on a lot of ventures. I believe you're shooting some sort of a movie or, or something right now. Is that correct? Um, I'm in post-production on a short film we did together called Lonesome Wolf. Okay. It's based off the uh, Herman Hess book, Steppenwolf. Okay. And uh, I'm, I'm doing all the audio dubbing and the folly work right now, but... Andrew Achilles Domestico acted in it, did the score, helped me on the production. Yeah, we have a real back and forth with projects and, and stuff. And you've worked with him a lot, I know, on his Blade of Surter project. And since, I don't know. since the beginning, since his first album he put out that was hip-hop four years ago, I literally bought a camera so I could do videos for him for that album. Now, you guys have known each other for how long? Technically since elementary school. Okay. But we didn't start hanging out till the end of high school parties you know we kind of partied together a little bit going to keg parties in high school what high school did you go to gaither high school okay yeah class of 05 okay we're old men now but yeah. uh but then uh you know you fall in and out with people something not bad but people come in and out of your life and then probably the past eight years or so we've been really close and kind of uh evolving as people together and and you kind of stick around the people that help you evolve better so you know we have a very tight knit tight group of friends and uh yeah, I talk to him every day. Well, I have, you know, so I've been doing this podcast since, uh, I'd say, October of last year. Uh, originally, I was kind of, you know, they say you go with what you know. So I was pulling attorneys and all these things. But as you can see, just looking around the room, big movie fan, big music fan, big skateboarding fan, art in general. And so that's always been what's interested me, what I wanted to talk about. So, you know, uh as I've evolved, I've gotten to learn and, and know of more people in the in the in the local community. Whether it's Ray Roa, who we were just talking about before, people who work with creative lo loafing the the local music uh, venues, the record stores, and then musicians, of course. And uh, through that process, at some point, I became aware of Andrew, and I remember specifically what it was. And if I recall from his interview, it was a photo that you shot, but it was the Marauder cover. Did you were you involved with that? Yeah, yeah. Everything okay. that he's done visually, I've been involved. Okay, with. so at some point along the way, I don't know if it was a people you might know or a, this person's this album or whatever, but I saw the cover of that album and it just right away jumped out at me. The coloring of it, the look of it, it had this very kind of seven. For me, it had this kind of very seventies feel of like a you know the, they had that heyday of cinema in the seven dog day afternoon and. Uh, Apocalypse Now, and a lot of these just kind of rough-looking men, but kind of dandied up in a nice suit and, you know, a tough look to it. And I remember seeing that cover. I was like, what is this? I didn't even know what type of music it was. I didn't know who he was, where he was. I didn't know if he was a local guy or whatever. And uh, listened to it, and as I've told him, I'll tell you, I'm a big uh, Queens of the Stone Age fan, so I like a lot of the desert rock, desert metal uh, music, and that was definitely something that I could hear in the music on that album. So as I started to go back and see some of the other stuff that he did and then 
also a big metal fan. So when Blade of Surter stuff started dropping and seeing those pictures, I mean, that just spoke to me in a big way. So it was really cool when I got to interview him finally last week. We've been talking about it before the whole COVID thing happened. But uh, that's how I learned about you. So I, I was like, oh, I got to get this guy in and talk to him right away. So that Marauder picture, uh, it, it's why me and Achilles work so great together because that was his color scheme. With his, He's like, I'm going to wear the blue suit in front of this, this backdrop. I showed up at his house. I was like, listen, we're going to have to shoot before the sun's in the sky. I showed up at his house at 730 in the morning. We did that shoot. Uh I worked on the composition of the album on the photo, making sure that we could put the Marauder title on the top and stuff. And uh, an hour later, I sent him that final, and then he put the text on, and boom, he had his album cover by, by 9 a.m. that morning, you know? And then that afternoon, we went out and shot some photos for the Frazetta girls, which is Frank Frazetta's granddaughters. Okay. They sent us some clothing to a promo form. Right. And, uh, you know, we just work like that all the time where it's, you know, he has an idea, I have an idea, and they just always mesh together. Well, so how do you view yourself? Because, you know, in introducing you, trying to think of what, what, what I call you, how do you identify? How do you self-identify? Honest, an artist. Yeah. I think that's the easiest. I paint as well and stuff. But, you know, sometimes people call themselves an artist, and maybe it, it almost sounds hoity-toity to me in a it sense. It sounds pretentious. A but, little bit. But in yeah. the lack of a better, you know. Right. And that's, that's why I got the cameras, is I wanted to be an artist, you know, and I, I can't draw really well. I'm not technical that way, but I always had that that kind of left brain artist thinking, and I just never knew how to express it very well. I, I'm pretty good at writing, um, but getting that camera, you know, uh, led me into photography and video and being an artist that way. But, you know, that I didn't get a camera to be a photographer. I did it to tell stories through short films. That was my goal. Have when did when did art become a, a a part of your life that you recognized as being something that was important or you know? Um, probably it was after I saw a documentary on the artist Marcel Duchamp when okay. I was about twenty two. Um, and he did like the fountain, which is a urinal with a, a fake signature on it, and he did these different art pieces that kind of broke the art world and said you don't have to do these fancy paintings, you know. And it made me realize that you know uh, anything can be art. If that's the artist's intent, you know, so his in, the artist's intent is what matters, not actually what was produced and what people think of it. And I started getting obsessed with art history at that time, and I'm big into people's stories. So, you know, I read Van Gogh's biography, Picasso's biography, and just getting into art that way, it made me realize more and more I wanted to express myself artistically. So when did you start doing the photography? Um, I bought my camera... About three and a half years ago. Okay. What, what, what do you, my wife's a photographer, too. So the, the first camera I bought, I'd never bought a camera in my life except those crappy disposable ones. Yeah, yeah. I can say shitty, right? You can say fucking shitty. Okay. Those fucking, fucking shitty, shitty little ones that you're embarrassed <laughs> to take to CBS because they're yeah. going to see all your photos. Yeah. So I used to take photos with that when I was a kid. But I went, and when I decided that this is what I wanted to do, I went and bought like a $4,000 Canon Mark III 5D. you're a Canon guy or a Nikon guy. Canon. And it's nothing specific on, that's just what I happen to buy, you know? Well, I've upgraded now to the Mark IV, which is... Is that a, mirrorless? No, that's still okay. not mirrorless. That's my next upgrade okay. next year, yeah. If you look back, that was my wife's first one uh, before we went to the mirrorless. That's what we used to shoot our uh, marketing okay. videos. The Nikon. Guys. Nikon, I heard, is great for portraits, too, yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah. So she, uh, she, so she's an attorney as well. We met each other in law school, but when we had our daughter, who's six now, she decided to stay at home. And through that, as all of our friends started having kids and everything, she really got into newborn photography and family photography. 
and uh, what a world that there is to photography. I mean, yeah. it's deep waters. Yeah, you, you get into it, and you know, I didn't know what a white balance was, what exposure was. A aperture. aperture. Yeah, yeah. aperture is the big thing, and yeah. trying to explain to yourself how a lens, you know, the inside gets smaller, so less light comes in, but then that affects your focal length. And, and I tell you what, it was just YouTube University, man. I spent hours watching YouTube That's, videos, yeah. learning from mistakes. You know, I'm a big believer in that the doer alone knoweth. Okay, that's like a Nietzsche quote, that you have to just go out there and do things. You know, I could have said, oh, I want to make movies. Let me find a guy that has a camera, and let me find someone that knows lighting, and let me find someone that will write a script for me. But instead, I I was like, no, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to show that it's purely my expression, so I better learn everything. Well, all the art that I appreciate is 100% that way. Uh, You know, it's funny because my wife kind of occupied a little bit of both, both worlds. She did a lot of the YouTube videos. Uh, but she also did apprenticeships with some people, kind of seeing their studios, what they did, their spots locally, uh, all that stuff. And then uh, w- one of the things that we did that was crazy, this is, this is where it almost seemed like a cult, but there's like this famous newborn photographer from like New Zealand or Australia, and she comes over and does these seminars that's attended by like a bananas amount of people. And we so there was one in Atlanta. So I went to that, and literally it was assembly halls full of, fabric to lay your baby on and backdrops <laughs> yep. and this type of stand and this type of tripod you don't even like, think of that stuff You're no like, oh, i oh, was like here's a baby make sure it's not crying let's take a photo which but, by yeah. the way she got out of the newborn very quick yeah. because it's a fucking nightmare yeah to find that <laughs> subtle moment you know how hard peaceful. it is to get a uh, a subject that you can actually communicate with that understands you know turn your head yeah, this way or right. that way you've got this and you got to get them really young because after they're a couple weeks old they start moving too much so it's it's you got to have a lot of you got to have a vector of a lot of things go right, right. for you to get that almost picture. like a baby whisper. Yeah, and I respect those type of photos though because good good newborn photos show so much expression. Like I've seen some great black and white ones that are just like uh, you see the wrinkles in the baby and and it just it kind of it it's not just this screaming entity anymore. It kind of it really humanizes the yeah. baby. Yeah. yeah. But that said, my entry point or understanding of photography, I wish I had the book here, but I gave it to Dave Decker, who I was just telling you about beforehand. Dave does a lot of the live music photography for Creative Loafing, but I don't know if you know who Glenn Friedman is. Um, He did a lot of the early Run DMC Beastie Boys. He did a lot of the Black Flag and Minor Threat. He did a lot of the... uh, you know, skateboarding, like I have all the Thrasher covers there. And, if I uh, saw it, I'd recognize yeah, yeah. it because those iconic kind of 80s, Well, this is 90s. like a New York kid got a dime store camera and went to CBGB and all these other places and just, you know, spray and pray, but got some of these iconic pictures that are, you know, I, I love punk music, metal music. And so my favorite art is skateboard decks, um, concert posters. Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Greg Ginn is the guitarist for Black Flag. Uh, Raymond Pettibone. Raymond Pettibone is Greg Ginn's brother. Raymond Pettibone did all of the covers for the early Black Flag albums. That It almost looks like it's Sharpie art, concert art. And it's just very visceral and not very academic. You know, like none of these people had it taught to them. They were just like, fuck it, I'm doing it. Skateboard deck, concert poster, album cover, you know. And so that's something that I've always liked is kind of that carnal... You know, it, it goes to show that you don't need the best equipment in the world. You don't need 
uh, all this schooling and stuff. You just have to have the will and being in the right place at the right time. You know, mm -hmm. that guy happened probably to be following bands around that weren't big yet. Oh, back then, photos, for sure. Right? And then, you know, they blow up, and it's because of these photos that this guy took with the dollar camera. When people were taking photos of Black Flag, no one knew who Black Flag was. You know, that just wasn't... Being in know, the right time and place oh, is really yeah, important. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. D.C., New York. I mean, these were just young, young kids who were angry and getting out there. They could play two or three chords on a guitar, you know, and they get through a, a song and a half before it was a melee, and you know, but that was the scene and that was the movement, and that was. And do you think that photographer was there trying to make money, or he was not? There, at he all. was there just trying to capture a moment and a feeling in time, you know. Which is kind of kind of how I see myself through this enterprise because I I you know I'm 45 years old. I've been an attorney for going on 20 years. I feel like I'm kind of locked into a life's path. But I have these daydreams of another life path, whether it's being in a band, being artistic, you know, because my formative years, I was artistic. That was a path I very easily could have gone down. But I thought to please my parents or to do what society thought I needed to do, I, you know, I needed to make money and all this other stuff. And so went to law school and, all, you know, so and it's fine. I'm not complaining about it. You know, it's work and I'm making making a wage and that's good. But. I had this itch always, this artistic itch somehow to get it out. And right now it's more of as a fan, whether it's a fan of music, whether it's a fan of photography, a fan of skateboarding, fan of like what you're doing. But um, but that, that itch never goes away. Never goes away. Yeah, and, yeah, and, that's... And, and candidly, and I think you might agree with me, it gets worse if you don't scratch it. And if, if I mean, you, you take it internally and say, you know, I sold out on something. Because I was managing a restaurant at one point, making a good paycheck and had good money saved up and was ready to buy a house and commit to that mortgage, salary pay, all that stuff. And, you know, uh, I had a life event happen where I just said, you know what, fuck it. I'm just going to pursue this for the next 10 years. Yeah. So I've given myself 10 years. I'm, Are you through that 10 years yet? No, I'm uh, three and a half years. Oh, into. So, well, there you go. Yeah, so I, I'm just, getting, I'm just yeah. getting started yeah. with this stuff. But, you know, I said that, that, you know, if I can devote 10 years of something that's passionate to me, and I fail, that's fine. Because then I can look back at 40 and say, I gave it my fucking best shot. Right, right, right. You know? right. So, um, well, you said it too. You don't have to have all this equipment. You don't have to have all this education to, to put out a good product. And that's one of the things that I love about Andrew's stuff is, I mean, his artwork, his, his music. I mean, he's prolific, but God, it's all good. And it's all, he produces everything himself and uh, taught himself GarageBand. And, and, you know, it, it just comes down to your will. Yeah, you know, I, a lot of artists I make, and I don't want to sound like I'm calling anyone out, but they'll make excuses like, "Oh, I couldn't get the studio time." Oh, the producer, or that's just all bullshit excuses that you tell yourself why you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Right. If you really want to do it, you just sit down and you fucking do Find it. Find a way. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, I was talking to him, and I, I knew that I, I knew he had a fascination or uh, some amount of uh, fandom for movies. But he, during the course of his interview, said to me that there's pro they're probably pretty equal, his love of music and his love of movies. So what, what was it that spoke to you? You said that using the camera to shoot film and that sort of stuff, was film always been something that you've been interested in? Or is that something that's grown over time? Or I mean, I've always enjoyed films. It, it definitely as a as an early teen and stuff, I'd got into, that's when I really started getting into, you know, Kubrick and all the Donnie Darko mm -hmm. and kind of cult films that, you know, that weren't as well known maybe to my peer group at the time, but I never considered myself going into filmmaking. I always enjoyed writing and, and writing stories. Um, but I don't think it was, it was until the past five years that I really decided that, that I think filmmaking is the best art form for me. And, 
filmmaking is the combination of all arts. It has the music aspect. It has composition like photography. You're dealing with color design just like a, a, a painter would deal. You know, like, okay, I'm going to have a red wall, so I'm going to have this character wear a blue shirt because I want him to be the focal point. And uh, putting that all together, it, it's the combination of all the arts into one form, and it's almost that apex of art for me. And when I realize that, I'm like, I think this is the route I need to take. Well, and it's all it's all a tool to get, a, a, well, if it's done well and if it's done for the right reasons, there's a voice there that you're trying to everything is, everything is amplifying that voice somehow have you have you spent much time ruminating on your voice what is you want to say what it is that you're trying to accomplish whether it's just an aesthetic uh, um, so, so I, I wouldn't say I, I sit there and think about it but I more I can look back now at, at god I lost I think I've done eight short films or something and now seeing um the similarities in it so you, you'll never see a cell phone in one of my short films. Um, and why is that? Do you want it to have a timeless quality? Ex exactly. Yeah. I don't want to date things. Yeah. And, you know, or someone say, oh, you can't type like that on a phone or, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Uh, and I also, I, I don't go for specific genres. You know, like a lot of people, they just want to make a horror film. or they. I never really go with that intent. After the film's done, I'll look at it and I'll be like, I guess this is kind of a suspense horror type of deal. Or, you know, my, my version of a comedy was me dressing up as a clown and eating dirt you know like so it's never i never go into it uh thinking about what genre i want to accomplish do you like harmony corinne i do Gr yeah. growing up as a kid that that was those were impactful gumo and julian donkey boy and kids, kids. And, yeah. yeah i mean uh ken park yeah. i don't know if you've seen ken park what was the one where he gets in fights with everybody? He gets beat. So that never actually got full release. It's okay. called Fight Harm. Yeah. And yeah. it's a documentary where he goes and picks fight with people. Just gets the shit beat out of him. And uh, <laughs> his friends had him had him stop doing it because the last fight he got in, someone hit him in the head with a brick. Yeah. And uh, they said it was against, you know, they, he shouldn't be doing that for his health. But that's another guy that he just went out and did it. He was following skateboarders around in the 90s. Well, for sure. I, I, so... But I, I don't. I, I say that name because a lot of what you're telling me reminds me of. You know, I don't. I don't know how much he enters into something with an idea of what it'll be. He kind of finds out what it is. Unless it's, I think, Spring Breakers. Which say what More you want recently, about it. I think he intended. He said, "I'm going to do an anti-Spring Break party film." Yeah, you yeah, know what I mean. So yeah. you go in there saying, "Actually, I want to kind of give a fuck you to a genre." Yeah, yeah. That's a little bit different of a mindset. Yeah. Well, that movie, and then I didn't see the most recent one with Snoop Dogg and Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, I, I watched a little bit of Beach Dog, or yeah, I forget. He's gotten. I don't want to say more commercial, but he's. His aesthetic is different in the last two Absolutely. films from the, the original Even ones. the shooting style and the digital style and, and the saturation of his colors has completely changed. From yeah. If you look at a Julian Donkey Boy, which he was working in a, a, a film theory called Dogma 95. Right, which is... A Lars Montier and a couple yeah. other people wrote it up, and it's like everything has to be natural, no set building. You're going to use this type of camera. And uh, he stuck to that for a while. And, and granted, you know, he's expanding, and he's getting a lot bigger budgets, which means there's producers, which means you have to make other people happy. For sure, yeah. And that's that's just the progression, I think, of, of filmmaking, though, is that you, the bigger budgets you get, the more people you have to make happy. Well, you, you, you mentioned a big one for me, which is Lars von Trier. I, I got really into those movies and uh, you know started watching them. Uh, I think the first one I saw was Dogville. I think it was Dogville. What was the one where they traced the set on the floor in chalk? Yeah, that was Dogville. Dogville. Yeah. 
I know Breaking the Waves, I think, was like his first one, or Dancer in the Dark, or whatever. Breaking uh, the Wave was before Dancer in the Dark. Breaking the Wave got big because uh, the actress was nominated for Best Actress right. in that. And which, then which Bjork was, was in Dancer in the Dark. Yeah, that movie, I watched that like once a year just to remind myself of things. Like, that is just such a good movie to me. Well, what was the one, though? It was called like The Four Obstacles, or the, and it was like he had all these filmmakers and said, you, you have to shoot a film with these obstacles in it. I haven't seen that one because that one's, I think, is in Danish and I haven't yeah. watched. Sometimes I. It's tough. I avoid yeah. sometimes the foreign language films because, you know, it is a little bit tougher of a watch. I, I haven't seen that one yet, though. But Lars Rantier, he's someone, he started out, he made a pretty traditional film. Um, it was a World War II film, and the name of it's it's Black and White. I'm lost to it now, but even Breaking the Wave was semi-traditional. You know, the story was a little bit weird, but, you know, he really does things his way, you know? Well, and he's an instigator, or, uh, uh, you know, he's... Agitator. He's agitator, and instigator. Yeah, yeah. On I purpose, mean, and that's... Very much he's trying to pick at scabs and trying to poke people and kind of get... Which, I guess, I guess, ultimately, the intent is maybe to give people a different perspective on maybe some some perceptions that they have or platitudes that they have. But I mean, uh, the one that, the one that I was most impressed by was Nymphomaniac. Uh, the one that spoke to me, well, the one that I thought was most beautiful was Melancholia. I mean, that was just oh, yeah. the soundtrack yeah. to that movie, the composition. And, and Kirsten Dunst, who just, knew like those, that depth of feeling you got from her. Right. Uh, but Annie Christ was the one that I thought about the most afterwards. Cause I was just like, What's going on here with yeah. this movie? And then that last scene where they're all coming up the hill at him, and, and all, it's just all like the kids or whatever. Yeah, and it's just like, what is going on? So, here? so after you watch that, what do you do? You go and Google that shit. And be oh, like, you start what looking does up. This mean? Yeah, what does this mean? The deer symbolism, this type of stuff, and then you and this goes back to me uh, being interested in artists and their story. You go back to it was Lars Van Trier was dealing with loss in his life at yeah. the time. And that's he how lost he a ex- child, didn't he? I don't know if he lost a child, but he was dealing with something. Because well, that's what happens in the movie, yeah, so maybe yeah. I'm mixing up the two. I, I don't think he actually lost a child, but he lost a relationship, I believe. And he, he went away to an asylum. He went away to a place to get better, and he wrote that while he was doing it. And, and uh, you know, people don't like that film because they it's either too much for him or, you know, there's a scene where a dude's dick gets smashed. Yeah, yeah. And, but... You know, at the same time, art has always been pushing those boundaries. I you think know? it's got you got to you got to get a reaction. You know, there's got to be a reaction there, and I don't think we can select. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't. I, I, I think it's dangerous to only try and achieve certain emotions. I think you've got to achieve the whole spectrum of emotions. It can't just be joy. It just can't be love. It's got to be sadness. It's got to be hate. It's got to be disgust. It's got to be all these different things because I think you've always got to work those muscles. It's you can do it in a healthy way, but that's got to be there. You know, uh, I think. Uh, imagine. So let's use the, the old story of Plato's cave about the people down there and all they saw were shadows and they didn't know what the real world was. Well, imagine it's a person locked in a basement and they've never seen the world, and all you show them is love stories. They're not going to know human emotions, right? And I think there might be some shitty Brendan Fraser movie where he was like locked in a basement forever yeah. and didn't know anything. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's some, Last of the past. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I actually, like but, that. Movie. My <laughs> wife and I like that. Movie. <laughs> okay. But uh, but you know, so if you are truly trying to help people understand themselves and helping yourself express emotions, then why leave out certain things just because it's uncomfortable? Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm trying to remember the name. Of, so the the seeds for this show was planted uh, through my fandom of Mark Maron WTF podcast 
one of my favorite podcasts, and he really kind of has a, a breadth of different types of people on there. But there's a photographer, and I'm not going to come upon who it is during this interview, but I'll find that out and text you later. But he's known for kind of startling photographs that are kind of uncomfortable to look at. Um, I'm sure you know who this is. I just can't think who it is at the minute. But uh, I think that's important. I think, I think you know, you to have the light, you got to have the dark. To have the sweet, you got to, you know, I, I think that that juxtaposition of opposing forces are important in and, art. And just recognizing that those forces are within life. Um, I'm big on Carl Jung, the psychologist, oh, yeah. and he talks a lot about, you know, the shadow self and repression of those type of things lead to neurosis. So, you know, uh, for the longest time, they said video games were bad for kids. Well, it ends up actually that is a good release for kids to have see violence in that way and stuff. That is, it's actually cathartic because you're releasing those emotions. Suppression always leads to neurosis. And, and that's, I don't try to suppress myself, you know. Uh, I came on here hoping I could curse, and I guess I can now. But, you yeah. know, it, imagine you're trying to have a conversation where you can't curse. Now you're thinking about your words more. Things don't come as naturally. It's the same thing with life. If you're repressing things in your life, other things won't come as naturally. I agree with you completely. Uh, you know, that's a, I'm not a big video game person, but uh, musically, I kind of somewhat of, not that I'm super fringy, but somewhat on the fringe. And so, you know, my wife's always like, you're weird. You know, and then she's like, is it okay that I'm not weird? Because you're weird. And, I, you know, I, you know, I, I want to listen to Jack Johnson or I want to listen to whatever. I was like, well, that's fine. Too. I mean, there's, there's room enough in the world for all of it. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things that I think about, and this kind of goes back to more my criminal side is you mentioned the word repression is where is the line? Like at some point there's gotta be a line to repress or to, to protect something. And, and this isn't, here's the example I'll give is I just finished watching last night. There's a new documentary on Netflix about Jeffrey Epstein. I had to turn it off after 20 minutes. It, It creeps me out so bad. Well, he he probably could have repressed some of it. Yeah, you know right. Yes, saying? yes. <laughs> there was there's a you know there's a healthy healthy, healthy expression expression absolutely. And then there's a definitely a, a an unhealthy expression. So there. not even uh, you don't even have to express dark emotions, but uh, uh, acknowledging them. Yeah, is the is what I mean by not repressing them. Right. As long as you're acknowledging that they're there within you. Right. Then you can actually deal with them. That's true. That's you know? true. Well, you know, it was funny because at some point along the way, I, I sent uh, Andrew a meme and it was like the music I listen to and me and it's like this ravenous wolf and then this little puppy dog. <laughs> and it's, in my experience, some of the nicest, most docile, you know, passive people I know listen to, you know, Cannibal Corpse and all these other things. If you go back to the studies of the world's happiest countries... The top three all have metal as their number one music. Yeah, they're all Scandinavian. Yeah, yeah death metal, all that type of stuff. They've also figured out healthcare and right, some other right. things. That but, it, maybe... but it all kind of goes hand in hand, which is, you know, you have to be able to uh, enjoy your life and be happy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So whether it's your healthcare or whether it's listening to the music you want to, that's all going to lead to a happier life. Yeah. Now, um, are you kind of the first artist in the family, or is there someone else that, that had it there, or...? Um, my father was really big into drawing. Okay. Um, he became an engineer later on and used it towards that and stuff. So he's still around or? No, he passed away oh, sorry, uh, about yeah. two years ago. Yeah. My father passed away two years ago. Too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cancer's a motherfucker. You I know what I mean? from cancer too. Yeah. Smoking cigarettes. Smoking cigarettes. Since 13. Spent 56 years smoking cigarettes yep. or something crazy. Yep. And yep. you know, yep. it's, it's going to get you eventually. But, uh, my mother knows she's more of a, a social butterfly type. Um, 
You have siblings? I had an older brother. He passed away. Oh, really? Yeah, about eight years ago. Oh, wow. About 10 years ago now. God, oh, wow. it's been so long. But uh, he, You said older, younger? Older. Yeah, he was four years older, and he was definitely a big influence on uh, me being 12 years old but wanting to act like I'm 16. So You know what I mean? How Trying old to... were you when he passed away? I was 22. And how was that? It was rough. That was a whole that whole period of my life was really rough. Um, that's back when I was hooked on drugs. Back then, uh, you know the the pain pill epidemic was running through Florida at the time. This was about oh eight oh nine, and uh, you know all of my most of my friends got got attached to it somehow. Everyone knows somebody. And did you do still it organically, or did you have an injury that started you on it innocently, and then it um, es- escalated from there? Or? No. What What happened was is I I was a a drug dealer essentially i sold weed mushrooms acid all that type of stuff and then how long has it been okay so the what what how long do you have until you can't get arrested for a crime eight years or something yeah, depending fine. on I'll, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll do pro bono you're fine okay good uh, so uh a, well i didn't do the crime but a friend of mine yeah. knew someone who uh, essentially robbed the back of a pharmacy and got like ten thousand percocets mm-hmm. so i started selling percocets okay and then that introduced me more into the pill scene and then i got hooked on the percocets was your brother, was this before your brother passed or after? Before. Okay, this was, was before. he aware that this was going on? Yeah, yeah. I okay. mean, we were we were using drugs together and okay. stuff. And uh, he, he was actually living in Hudson at the time that okay. I fell into things. But, uh, you know, and uh, those type of drugs, it's never enough. Cocaine, yeah. opiates, you know, it's just never enough. And you go from a 10 milligram Percocet to, you know, at my worst, I was shooting up 30, 30 milligrams of Roxycontin, oh my so God. almost a thousand milligrams a day, at my worst. And where was bottom for you? Uh, so my brother died. That wasn't even bottom because I just used drugs again to cope with it. Um, and then I ended up getting a theft charge, a felony theft charge, a completely nonviolent charge, and that put me on probation. I was unable to complete probation because putting an my, addict on probation it's is the a worst. recipe for disaster. It's the yeah. dumbest thing in the world. Yeah, there was no there's no way they're going to follow it. You know, because it wasn't a drug charge I was arrested for. I wasn't offered right, rehab yeah, or anything. Yeah, yeah. So I tried to do probation for about 18 months and screwed it up every time whether I didn't show up for drug tests or didn't pay the money. So the judge, Judge Perry, who had a really big name back in the day. I know Judge Perry. He was actually somewhat fair with me. He sent me to a program. Uh it was in it's called it was the Phoenix House in uh Ocala, and I was there for six months, and I got kicked out of there for drinking. I wasn't doing drugs, but I went back to drinking as some type of drug. When I got kicked out of there, Perry essentially said, listen, you can't do this. Here's 13 months in Florida State Prison. And going to prison, I did 10 months out of the 13 because of good behavior and whatnot and time served, but uh, going to prison was my bottom point. Where was that? Where'd you go? Um, So you... Originally, everyone from Tampa, you go to right the central intake. And my first day there, we're riding the bus from Orient Road to uh, to the Orlando intake. And the guy next to me is like, oh, my stomach's bothering me. I'm nervous. I'm like, it's going to be all right, man. It's going to be all right. Were you, were you feeling it was going to be all right? Or were you I, I was ta- I was talking. I was just trying to talk it up to him. You yeah. know what I mean? I knew I could deal with prison probably better than most people just because I'm good at keeping my head down. But the first few minutes we arrive there, they strip you down naked. You have to face each other about 10 feet apart, and they make you squat and cough. Yeah. And it's completely uh, uh, dehumanizing. Yeah. They just break you down there. And the guy next you to me— You think that's part of the reason they do it? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. They, they, right away, they're telling you, we're in charge. We yeah, can get you butt naked every, yeah. and make you do whatever you want. But the guy next to me uh, shit himself. Yeah. 
went and squatted and coughed and shit right next yeah, to me. And I yeah. said, this is my first three minutes of prison. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, holy fuck. Yeah. One year ago, I was sitting at home in a nice neighborhood, you know, middle class family. And now I'm, you know, uh, sitting here with a guy shitting right next to me. And, and that whole experience in prison really opened me up to uh, a lot of things, but it got me clean. And I'll tell anyone right now, if you know someone addicted to drugs, prison is the best option. People do not want to hear that. Yeah. Rehab, you have this comfy pillow with a little mint on it every day, and you can leave when you want most of the time. I know people have been to re- prison or uh, rehab 10 times. Prison is the best choice. Yeah. At least that's what worked for me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's always the same for everybody, but I, I, I do know, you know, a lot of times I have situations where all parents come and they're hiring me on a charge and they're like, such and such is in jail. You know, we need to get a bond hearing. Let's get a bond hearing tomorrow. And I'm like, do you really want to put them back on the street right now? Because no, yeah. all you're going to do is magnify it, make it worse. Instead of this one charge, we're going to have 10 charges. You're going to spend your money, your bond money. It's going to get a street. You're going to have to pay, you know. And just, I was in and out of jail while I was addicted, you know, and you spend three days withdrawing in jail. Yeah. Oh, my God, it's the most terrible experience. But I probably did it five times because I was always out in a week. I had a friend. Uh, he was a prosecutor as well, and he ended up getting prosecuted for um, accepting uh, pills in exchange for providing representation. I remember reading about that story. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Um, I'm not going to give the name, uh, but uh, he was a gang prosecutor Uh and so when he got put into prison, they oh, knew wow. they knew right away that what he was, and so they had to put him in solitary, and then they had to send him to an out of state prison. And uh, he was telling me, you know, once he got out, uh, telling me about the process, and it just it it broke my heart. It made me sad. It made me feel small. It made my world feel small because your your view of the world your considerations what's important to you isn't is just one small part of what people in this world face and when he was telling me about his experience in prison i was just like my lord i couldn't even imagine you know i mean he was like picked on a lot and he's not like a big physical guy i mean he's not like some street you know brawl or whatever hold his you know he's an academic guy you know right probably never been in a fight in his life and now all of a sudden He's got a mark on his back, and you know, and so I, I just can't even imagine. It, it's a very strange tightrope uh, that you have to walk when you're in prison. Uh, one big thing that I was told when I got there was you stay away from the four G's: the gangs, the gambling, the guards, and the gays. Mm-hmm. And not the gays because of anything no, I, uh, I anti-homophobic, right. but it was uh, if you get associated with the gays, and that puts you in a certain category. Right. And I was great at staying away all three. I just I couldn't help but gamble sometimes. I was in there. We would gamble on racing and, and football and playing poker and stuff. Well, and, so let me ask you about that um, because uh, I just from a curiosity standpoint, you know, the way that the media portrays prison, you can't stay away from it. Is that true, do you think, or not true, or maybe sometimes true? Or? You can stay away from gambling. The toughest is staying away from guards and, and gangs. Uh, but once... I was in, and they knew I was non-affiliated, and mm-hmm. I made it very clear by not talking to certain people. Yeah. Um, they left me alone for the most part. Yeah. You know, there, there, was, there was an instance when I went to my main camp, which was in Jackson County, which is right near Dothan, Alabama. Mm-hmm. It's literally on the other side of the state, different time zone. Um, it was a Crip camp run by the Crips. The second in charge was in my uh, little area, 
and he came up to me and asked to borrow a soup from me. And that's soup? a test, a soup. Yeah, 50 cent soup. Okay. And it was clearly a test. And uh, when I gave it to him, I was like, uh, you're going to get it back to me eventually, right? And he's like, yeah, of course, of course. And he came back three days later with another soup for me and said, you know, I've never really had anyone ask me to pay him back. The fact that you did that showed me something. And that whole time that I was at that camp for the next six months, I was never messed with at all. That would give me such anxiety because I place so much importance on the dumbest shit in my day-to-day life right now. <laughs> if I was in prison and saying, what do they want me to say here? <laughs> I would drive myself nuts. Right, right. Well, I then guess you have to go with your gut a little bit. Yes, go with yeah. your gut. Don't show fear. Yeah. I mean, it, there are some typical things that, that you see in the movies. That are, so you don't go punch the biggest person. or right. You know what I mean? You yeah. avoid, 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 avoid. But sometimes you can't avoid things. I, I was approached by three gang members, and they wanted to kick my ass because they thought I was someone else. Uh-huh. I had to show them my prison ID. Because uh-huh. we were, us white boys, we all had shaved heads yeah. and skinny. We all looked the same yeah, in there, yeah, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, you can get into shit without trying. Right. I was just very lucky, and I fell into a group of people in there that were all uh, into reading books and working out. That was it. So I was going to ask you, is that uh, the storytelling, did you have that in you before prison? Yeah, yeah. when I was six years old, I was trying to write stories about how, stuff. How did, how did your experience in prison impact your uh, desire to tell stories? And, and I, Reading books. I really was able to just like read all the time and reading John Updike and, and seeing uh, how these stories are woven. And John Updike has a book called In the Beauty of the Lilies. And it follows four generations of American families from the early 1900s to... Uh, the 1980s and I just it was like this is the most beautiful storytelling yeah and it's like to this day I want to make it into a film so those type being able to read the the stories and seeing how these artists are telling their stories made me get into it that much more any other books that stand out as kind of seminal for you the- uh, this Herman Hess book Steppenwolf okay. uh, I read in, in prison too which was very helpful about a man finding himself and whatnot um you know, and reading nonfiction, reading a lot of Carl Jung books yeah. and uh, going into the crazy Zacharias Stitchin stuff of, <laughs> of uh, ancient aliens and reading those books. But no, I can't think of the one. My favorite book is definitely Steppenwolf by Herman Hesse. And so then what you're reading, how much has that impacted kind of your your eye, your artistic viewpoint since you've been out? With the how did prison impact that, or how did well, reading both. prison reading? I mean, if we're the sum of our parts, you know, what's you know, those things have to be um, there, be in there somewhere, right? I've always been an empathetic person, but prison definitely uh, showed me uh, more empathy because you don't know people's backstories, and that's the craziest thing is you you interact with these people every day in prison, and you look, laugh and joke with them, and then I'd be laying at nights about to sleep and thinking. I was just laughing with a murderer. Yeah. Literally a murderer. He, he was 20 years. He slept next to me for stomping some dude's head in. He was in the Hell's Angels. And we communicated perfectly fine. He was a nice guy to me. And, and that showed me, like, we really cannot be judging people on their past. Like, you have to be able to look at a human being and, 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 and know who they are based on how they treat you. And that's, you know, I don't know, I, you know... You look at the news today, this week, you have George Floyd, you have, you know, the, the, the riots, you have our president. I'm getting goosebumps right now just thinking about President that texting about first the looting, then the shooting. And there is a lack of identification. I forget who it was that said it, but uh, someone was talking about, who was it? I don't remember who it was, but I think 
I think they were talking about Ted Nugent, and they were they they were to talk. I don't remember if it was Joe Rogan or it was Dave Grohl or somebody who probably is more centrist or or, or liberal leaning. And they're like, well, "What was that like?" And it's like we have far more in common than we don't have in common. Even the most diverse people, if you take all of it together, you know, they're eighty percent alike and twenty percent different. Right. You know, it's, it's just your environment that's different usually. Well, you know what I mean? Like people you, that that you where see you a start out, right. your environment and all these things, but that empathy thing and you know, my father passed so my my father passed away in 2018, my mother passed away in 2019. I was an only child. And they were they were both raw nerves. They were both sweet people, but they were very affected by life. They had a lot of anxiety, they had a lot of de- depression. And they dealt with it with addiction. They were both alcoholics. And as they got sick in their later life, uh, you may know this from from your earlier experience with pills, but older people get given pills like it's going out of style. They go to their doctor, here's some Valium, here's some Xanax, here's some Oxycontin, here's some Hydrocodone, here's some blah, 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 blah. And it got to the end there, the last 10 years of my parents' life were... They were taking each other's pills and they were drinking it with wine and all this stuff. And I don't have any brothers and sisters. I get calls. Hey, your mom went to the emergency room last night. Hey, your dad fell into the bookcase. And I was like, you know, you guys aren't Keith Richards. <laughs> you're, right, you're, right. you're pushing 80. And but it, this whole thing of we, you know, we leave lives of quiet desperation. That was, you know, a, uh, my dad used to even talk about that. And, and off air, I'll even go further down that path with you at some point. But. You you just don't know other people's struggles, right? And being in prison, you know, like like you're kind of alluding to, is is an opportunity to not let's not see the monster, but kind of see what got them to that point in life. But but to be very clear, there are monsters in prison, and some of the biggest monsters are the guards. Well, okay, well, the Stanford Prison Experiment. If you know sure. into psychology, yeah. it is a hundred percent true that. The, the mentality of the guards is one-upping each other. Uh, there's no cameras in, in prison. Like, there are cell phone cameras out now. And, you know, watching that, that George Floyd tape, I'm getting goosebumps again talking about it. Listen, I saw so many people get fucked up in prison by the guards with zero repercussions. I got beat up. Not beat up. I was pushed and shoved down because they thought, again, they thought I did something I didn't do. My, my cellmate had done it. Right. But I couldn't be like, oh, it was him, not me. But two guards came up to me, grabbed me by the shirt, threw me up against the wall, and threw me down on the floor. And, uh, you know, what repercussions do I have? Yeah. When you first go into that— complain about it to the warden? How's that going to work out for you? There was talks—the warden at the Jackson camp was embezzling money. He got arrested for $100,000 embezzlement. But, I mean, they're all—those were the worst—some of the worst people I saw in prison were the guards. Right. And and it's the fact that they're supposed to be there as some type of uh, a law enforcement type aspect— and they're the ones actually doing the worst stuff. So this is a this is an interesting kind of uh, not segue, but this touches on a question. So one of the things that I've been doing is the elections are coming up in the fall. So a lot of attorneys that I know or some that I don't know are running for judge. And I've been doing this twenty years. I've run across every kind of judge you could come across. And I've always had kind of a problem with authority. Like, I don't think I could have ever done well in, in the military. I don't know how well I would do in prison. I, I have this problem with asking why. And I also have this problem with someone kind of condescending me. I don't know if it's, a, if it's a, an ego thing, if it's a what, whatever it is. But 
one of the things that I talked to all these uh, judges or these potential judges about is I asked them what 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 is the most important um, uh, quality that you think it is for to be a good judge, and my thing is always that it's temperament. And my problem with temperament is I always worry about who wants to become a judge and why. Who wants to become a police officer and why? Who wants to become a prison guard and why? Because some of them want to do public service. Some of them want to do good. Some of them have a very, you know, uh, idealized version of enforcing the law and want to do good. And that's all great. But a lot of them want to crack some heads. A lot of them want to have power over someone because they don't seem to be able to have it in their life. They've been under someone's thumb, so they want to put someone else under their thumb. And anytime you have a position of power, it's a magnet for people hungry for that. And that's what scares the shit out of me about judges, police officers, politicians. And, and unfortunately, with politicians, all that, when people go into it that do have that pure public service sentiment in their heart, get jaded they get so jaded so quick they they're you know this isn't how things work you know it has to be done this way and and temperament is huge with judges because i mean go back to like the kavanaugh thing that's up to the supreme court they've always temperament is what you should be judged on if you're going to get moved up in the court system as a judge right if if you can keep your calm in in these situations apply the law to the facts and you know right exactly because the law has no temperament yeah you know the law is written code that's up for interpretation but it shouldn't be affected by anger yeah you know you should get more jail because of judgment yes yes which happens all the time daily yeah so um but anyway so you talk about some of the ugliest people that you've seen in the prison park but but this brought up another question and this is one i've always gone back and forth on do you do you think that evil exists? Do you think that ev- like true evil, like not some someone who did something horrible, but just just someone who was born that way, or, or just pure evil exists in the world? And 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 I'll and I'll if if you have an answer, great. If you don't, I can give you an example of what I'm talking about. So I would say yes. So um, you know, we we label it evil because that's how humans want to do. You know, we want to put labels on things like that. You know, I, I think the universe kind of is is uh, is benign in a sense where it, it's not necessarily good or bad. You know, the, the universe is just it. It's just the universe. But there's evil, there's good. That all exists. Uh, and some people are evil. You know, e- they do evil things and they are evil, and, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. It's something I read. I was getting into, like, the ancient Indian texts and uh, Dharma – Dharma is your duty when you're born, your dharma. And, you know, some people's dharma is to be a piece of shit, and mm-hmm. that might just – and then that is what they're there for. But, you know, uh, I don't necessarily see it as – I don't want to say it's not a bad thing. It's a bad thing, but it's part of the universe. You know, you got to accept it just as much as you accept happiness. You don't want to, you know, look for the good in everyone. Some people are just shitty, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, so, so here's where it comes up and, and, uh, you know, as a former prosecutor and I also do criminal defense, I've had opportunity to represent sex offenders, uh, in my life. And I've watched that, you know, we just talked about this Epstein thing and, you know, whenever I had a case, those cases were so frustrating from more so from a defense perspective than from a prosecutorial perspective. But in, in either way, most times when you have these cases, they happen in somewhat of a vacuum. So what I mean by that is most people are not molested in front of people. 
most molesters do not admit to molestation. Most of them ha are preying upon children or people who their credibility is, is somewhat always questioned. So it's very difficult with the vast majority of those cases as we see them in the criminal justice system to ever f truly feel that you know what happened, right? Uh, there was a conversation, oh, when it was uh, Kobe Bryant, when Kobe Bryant passed away. I remember when the helicopter crashed, the first hour on Facebook was, oh my God, he and his daughter, how sad. And then the next hour was, but he raped someone, but he raped someone, but he raped someone. And I am not a big sports fan. I, have, I know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to have any kind of in-depth conversations. And I asked the question, I said, I, I don't remember, was he convicted of that? And they were like, no, but he was credibly accused. And I was like, okay, credibly accused, what does that mean? And I was just, I was being academic or antiseptic about it. I wasn't, you know, the problem, the problem now, on, especially on social media, is you can't ask a question without it immediately no, being... you're canceled. Yeah, yeah, immediately being politicized and all this other stuff. And so one of the things that happened in the chain, and these were people that I, you know, respect, they, someone, someone said, uh, always believe women. And I was like, huh. Do you always believe women or do you, you don't, so do you always disbelieve men or do you, I mean, what does that mean? And I was trying to like, trying to break it apart, unpack it and say, what is that, what does that actually mean? How do, because if I'm a prosecutor or a defense attorney or if I'm in a jury, if, if all juries always believe women and women <laughs> victims, then what are we doing a trial for? It's right, just, right. you made the allegation, it goes away. And, you know, you watch this video of uh, the Ashley Cooper, uh, the, the guy up in New York, the bird watcher. Did you see that? Yep, yep. Well, here you go. I mean, she's on the phone, you know, a black man is accosting me and violently. Da, 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 when da, her dog was messing with him. And he was, yeah, he was yeah. keep it, please stay away from me. Da, 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 you know, and so this this always believe this or having these general rules and I'm going way off on a tangent, but I'm going to bring it back into the point that I was making. Um, these sex cases, these, you know, rape, the pedophilia, you know, all these things, just, just the darkest, the darkest, almost more than murder in a lot of ways, the darkest area of the criminal justice system, the criminal pedal code. But I think, people are too ready to view that as evil and not as a sickness or not as a result of a epidemic or not as a result of mental health that's not been addressed or not as a result of maybe how people have been uh, shortchanged by the system, whether it's foster home to foster home and being molested and you know, it's well. That, that comes back to the empathy thing, where you, you know, you, so this is this is this right. actually is the whole point that okay. I'm making. <laughs> I, know, I, I got far afield, but it's so easy. You know, they they should, they should burn that guy at the stake. They should electrocute that. You know, kill this person. Blah blah blah. blah. And it's like, I don't, th you know, I don't think life is that simple. I don't think putting someone in that. It's easy to put them in that spot and throw them away. But I think it's more important to say, you know, I was I and I and I say this, let me be very careful how I say this, I was lucky enough to be born a heterosexual man, and so all of my uh, desires are socially accepted, right? But some people, I think maybe from birth, I don't know if it's, you know, just chemical imbalance or IQ or other things, you know, that may have put them on this path that they don't have control over. And even in that movie Nymphomaniac, I don't know if you remember the one point towards the end of the movie where she finds that guy and she's, aren't they, don't they like, 
trying to get him aroused by a child or something like that. And he starts crying. Do you remember that in the second part of Nymphomaniac? I'd have to rewatch. I don't remember that specific. That's a long movie. They go to like break into a house and they have the guy there. And in any event, um, it by no means am I pro. I'm just I'm trying to say in 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 the in talking about evil, talking about empathy. You know, I think that there is always a path that gets someone to the point where they're the quote-unquote monster. And it's important to take that path into account because I think only when you understand that there is a path that something led to that can you address what it is that led to that. Right, and and there's absolutely, there's sociopaths that just don't care at all. But, you know, being able to see those nuances in people's life, that's difficult. Yeah. It is much easier to just label someone as a monster. And what they did might be horrific, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't look back and say, maybe this led him to do this, this led him to be this way. Not justifying what they're doing at all, but just understanding how they got there. And, you know, to bring in movies into it, too, there's a... Well, thank you, because I don't want this to all be about yeah, that. Right. I want to kind of get well, back to the topic at hand. But so there's yeah. a documentary uh, called Crumb, about oh, Robert sure, Crumb, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and his brother was a pedophilia mm -hmm. and his brother knew he lived with pedophilia mm -hmm. and he had urges and uh i think he groped someone at one point in new york mm -hmm. got arrested for it and his brother ended up killing himself because he couldn't live with the pedophilia thoughts right, that he had right. even though he didn't act out on them so you know it, is there evil in the world yes but it's not that black and white it's not there's, there's nuances not metaphysical are you a person of faith at all are you a spiritual person I'm I'm a spiritual person. Yeah, yeah. I'm more. I would say pagan. Yeah, probably. I like following the moon signs and yeah. stuff like that yeah. and the solar system. That works out well for Andrew. A lot of his. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Know, well, that's something. That's for... something we bond on. You know that nature talks to us more than anything else. Right, right. Well, he was saying he's like, I got to get near mountains. I got to get near water. I'm sick of this heat. I got to get out of here. Yeah, yeah. It feels unnatural sometimes. Yeah, it gets pretty disgusting. Um, I was telling my wife and I in February we went to Scotland and, uh, I, I didn't know Andrew at that time, but kind of. You know, you, you kind of temporally lose your history and forget when things happen in relation to each other. But I was talking to him, I was like, God, I wish you, if there's, if there, if, if, if he's a place, he's Scotland. I mean, just it's all right there. All the history is right there. All it's all the feeling, all the emotion, all the fire in the belly. I mean, you're walking around in these ruins and these castles and all this stuff where all this just amazing history happened and it's all right there to, to see and touch and it's so beautiful. And so I was like, you, you, yeah, I said, you, you go there, you come back and write probably 20 albums in a week, <laughs> right. you know, it's right there. So anyway, let's, well, let's, let's skip ahead a little bit. So the filmmaking kind of starts after you get out of prison. Well, I get out of prison and, uh, what year was that? 2012. I got out okay. October 31st, 2012. Halloween, special occasion. I took off my prison uniform, that costume, put on my civilian uniform, citizen uniform. And, uh, you know, the first two years was rough. I was doing bullshit jobs, like call centers that were just terrible jobs. And then I got in at a restaurant as a cook and just worked my ass off. Within six months, I was the shift lead. Within a year, I had a key to the store and access to the safe mm -hmm. and uh, became a manager. And once I became a manager... I realized, like, the felony on my record didn't hold me back. Right. Because I was able to prove who I was. I never, when they brought me a task, I never let them down. And they looked past my record and saw me as the person who I was and trusted me with that. So I was working my ass off in the restaurant. Back then, the restaurant business, you're working 70 hours a week. Yeah. You know, this was before the law changed, the 50-hour max. Yeah. 
we were working 70 hours a week and I was making good money, but I was just drained at the end. My soul was drained. And uh, Andrew started making, he made this hip hop album and I was blown away that he did everything himself. And uh, I was jealous, actually, in a sense, you know, that I'm jealous of him. Yeah, I'm jealous that, of you. yeah. that he's creating these things and he's doing it on his own. And, and, you know, I start making excuses. Oh, but I have to work. I have to do this. And it's like, do I, though? No, I, I don't. So I said, fuck it. I had 10 grand saved up. I quit my job, uh, got a job as a server somewhere just to have extra income. What year was this? This was 2016. Okay. 2015, the end of 2015. So I actually quit my job October 31st, 2015, exactly three years to the day I got out of prison. That's why I think dates are important and stuff and, and momentum of things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I went to Best Buy and got a credit card, and I lied to him and said I was still a restaurant manager. So right. I, got, I got a credit card with zero interest, and I bought my camera. And, and uh, you know, from then that point forward, the same commitment I put into that restaurant work to make to scrubbing those dishes to becoming a shift lead and – it, I put that same mentality into my camera work to where I'm just going to do this every fucking day yeah. and, and something's going to come out of it. And it's amazing when, you know, there was no end term, no goal at the end per se. It's just, I'm going to do this. I'm going to become an artist and I'm going to work every day at it. I have 10 years to make this work. And, uh, I've had nothing but great opportunities since then. So let's talk about some of your work that you've done. I mean, walk me through, you've talked to me. I mean, obviously, uh, the photography, the work that you've done with Andrew, the movies that you've shot. Tell, tell the people that are listening about some of the stuff that you've done. So it started out, you know, trying to do music videos for my buddies who were uh, mostly into hip-hop. And then uh, having the camera that was a really good photography camera, I said, you know what, I'm at all these shows all the time. I might as well start taking pictures. So I started taking pictures of local event, music events, and uh, that's when I contacted Ray Roa. Mm -hmm. I just, out of the blue, I'm, I'm a big believer in you make shit happen for yourself. You go out and happen to things. You don't let things happen to you, right? And I just emailed Ray Roa one day, never met him in my life, and said, I have some photos. I hope you might like them. Uh, can I email them to you and let me know? And Ray is the nicest guy. He Ray, gave is, Ray, is, Ray is a saint. I've, I've, I, it's funny because... Creative loafing, you know, I've always been aware of it, just living locally. But Same. the yeah. people involved are just amazing people between Dave and Gabe. You know Gabe? I, I know his work. Yeah. I know the names. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Ray, uh, you know, it's when I when I bought this building, I, I knew I wanted to do a mural outside because, uh, you know, I, I've always, like I say, I always try and insert art into what I do. And, you know, this the Tampa Heights and Seminole Heights community, you know, I'm from St. Pete, so murals are really big over there, big over here, and I know I wanted to do something. And when I was in law school, my wife and I uh, would study all the time and have music on in the background, and Elliot Smith was one of the big ones that we could put on and listen to but still be able to study and concentrate on what we were doing. And so he had the figure eight album, which is the swirl of the red and blue line, so that's on that wall out there. And then long long story short, uh, I, got a, I got an email and it says, hey, you know, my name's Ray. I write for, for this. You know, is that is that mural? Is that an Elliot Smith thing? I was like, yeah, yeah. He's like, oh, that's cool. Do you mind if I write an article about it? I was like, that would be the coolest thing ever. So we talked about it a little bit. He did an article. And then every now and again, when there's been someone of uh, public interest that's, you know, he's like, hey, can you let me know what the status is on this person's case? or blah, blah, blah. So I'm always trying to. Oh, like, so you do a little work for CL yeah, here and I'm there. Yeah, I'm a little <laughs> bit of the background legal, the legal, uh, you know, consultant, as it were. 
for him. But uh, as I started doing this, I was like, I got to get Ray on here because he knows everybody. He yep. knows he's such a broad taste in music and art and all these other things. So I got him and then my buddy uh, Greg, who plays with Wolfface, um, he you know told me about he's like, you should talk to Dave. Dave does a lot of photos for Creative Love. His band Big Sad's great. He's got a really interesting story. And another thing. So where you said you're from from Tampa you went to Gaither there's this weird phenomenon with Claremel are you aware of Claremel the, the, the yeah yeah okay. I know the area Claremel okay. I Claremel mean, is a breeding ground for some of the strangest most beautiful people locally I don't mean aesthetically beautiful but just craziest um, Keith over at Microgroove Rob over at Planet Retro Dave my cousin Chris Bryant who's going to come on eventually and he's like a Claremel historian Brian Schaefer who owns Skate Park of Tampa like all these like people who have kind of struck out in the world and kind of lived these interesting lives come from that area. And that's kind of a whole it, it, other... It goes back to energy and, and the universe kind of having these places like that. Well, you talk like about, yeah, yeah, having yeah. an effect on your life. But um, there was a point... Oh, so Ray. So Ray, yeah, Ray, amazing person. And just, you know, he was on the show and then gone from there. But so anyway, so you started doing the photography, you talked to Ray and got into that. Reached out to Ray, super welcoming to me and uh, posted... Some of the first photos I took of an event called uh, Wine and Rhyme that was downtown. It was I was the only Wine and Rhyme. Yeah, it was done by a group. Uh, Rap music and wine. Yeah, it, wow. well, they had all types of music actually and oh. stuff, and it was cool. It was at a Nice, which is now closed down. Yeah. But uh, did they put anything else there? Is that just... yeah? I just walked by there the other day, and it looks like there's a different. I forget the name of it now, but it's a different the restaurant. Best Moscow Mule. Yeah, Nice, yeah, yeah. Oh, nice yeah. was great. Yeah, but having that confidence of seeing my photo work, I had a camera for about a month. And Ray posted my photos online, on CL online. And I think having that continual uh, uh, motivation of confidence was very important, you know. And then people started reaching out to me to do uh, photos for them. Um, I had a friend reach out for me to do a wedding for him. So then I got into wedding videography. Uh, I had a friend reach out for me to do some legal tapes for them. And I started doing legal stuff. And... I think it, it's once I put myself out there as, okay, I am a photographer, videographer, uh, then stuff starts coming in. It comes back to you, yeah. you know, and, and it, it, it's definitely snowballed into just a great thing to where, you know, Creative Loafing made a post that I had some pictures and they posted and it said, filmmaker Michael M. Sinclair. And that just filmmaker. made it just made my day that now that's it's no there longer you go. filmmaker. That's yeah. what you are. That's yeah. what we're called. <laughs> it's no longer restaurant manager, Michael. It's yeah. actually a title I wanted yeah. in front of my name. Right. You know, what, what are some of the works that you're most proud of? Um, you know, my, my early short films, they all were just the technical things on it. Just drive me drive me crazy because yeah. I, I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. Um, but I did this one short film called Affirmation and it's uh do you write it all, or yeah, I write well, everything except for Steppenwolf, I guess. Yeah, but. well, with Steppenwolf, it was still written. It was you just, read the script. Yeah. It was based on yeah. it. No, I definitely I write everything. Okay. No co-writers or anything. And I starred in this one too. Affirmation. Uh, I I had a tripod, my camera, and a yardstick to set focus, and I did everything myself. Oh, wow. And the story's about a a guy wakes up and he does yoga and reads Zen books and he tries to combat his depression. He uses a prescription pill and then. Uh, life kind of starts getting him down by watching the news and reading the newspaper and certain things, and it's kind of got a harsh ending. But I'm, I'm, I'm. I think that was the first time where I looked at one of my pieces of of, of work and said, "Okay, I can express something that's going to be universal and that's going to have an impact." You know, and, and that kind of set me more on towards what I wanted to make instead of say some 
silly horror gore film or something. Like right. I really want to kind of have some statement on society and make some type of impact. I'm not into the popcorn entertainment per se. I enjoy it for myself every once in a while. It has its place. I go watch Marvel movies. I'm not shitting on Marvel yeah. or anything, but something, some, some stuff's bubble gun for the brain yeah. and some stuff is a jackhammer to the brain, yeah. you know? So who are some of the filmmakers that you look up to and that you... Oh, the, uh, right. the, the top two that I think are the most influential is Stanley Kubrick and David Lynch. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kubrick's style is absolutely amazing to me. Shining's one of my all-time yeah, favorites, and, and I know that you and Andrew have a... Oh, we, every one of his... My favorite is A Clockwork Orange, my yeah. favorite movie of all time. Yeah. And I think I love that aesthetic. That yeah. 70s, 80s aesthetic, cross-dissolves, uh, you know, the it's stuff that's... that Marauder cover. There's yeah, definitely yeah, a look there. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and there's some films that are coming back to that now. Uncut Gems is one of them. Oh, yeah, the Safdie brothers. That uses a, an actual zoom, zoom lens. Zoom lens the is one, one before that, the Good Times? Good with, Times. Yeah. It was all right. I, yeah. I think Uncut Gems was way, better. Way better, but stressful yeah. as shit, man. I walked yeah. out of there. I was like, I my hands, drink. Yeah, yeah. My hands were gripping the whole time, but which was great, you know? Well, uh, another one is uh, Craig Zoller, who uh, he did um, Bone Tomahawk. He did Brawl and Cell Block 99. He did Drag okay. Across Concrete. Yep, yep, yep. And they're very much these kind of Charles Bronson, Lee Marvin. Um, who's the one who did Bullet? Uh, I'm thinking of... I'm thinking the old Bullet with Mickey Rourke. but Not, not Mickey Rourke, uh, but that's the old Bullet. Anyway, it'll come to me. Um, in any event, but that 70s kind of hard man hard you yeah. know just kind of br there's a hard edge to it there's a roughness to it and, and that goes so it is the character has a hard edge to it but the whole aesthetic as a film you know you have a little grain to it and everything might not be perfectly exposed mm -hmm. and, and there there's there's elements of Kubrick's films that you watch and you're like that's not perfect yeah you know there's shaky camera work oh, here yeah. that dubbing's a little bit off but now they stand the test of time so if you're if you're yeah. if you're making films that you just want to look great in 2020, well, how are they going to look in 2030? You know, right. they're outdated maybe in some yeah. sense. You know, that the more timeless feel is much better. Well, that's... And then so an, another one of my favorites is Wes Anderson. I've always loved his movies because a, a couple reasons. One is they are manicured within an inch of their life. You know, yeah. every... You could pause any Wes Anderson movie at any point from beginning to end, and that would be a picture you could hang on your wall. Yep. Um, so that's, that's number one, but we talked about needing the dark and the light and they're these very sweet movies, but almost invariably at some point in the movie, there's a shootout. Someone gets a knife stuck in their leg. A dog is run over and killed. Right, <laughs> there's right, always yeah, this yeah. one part of those movies where everything just kind of spins I mean, the, out of The Life Aquatic is about a kid trying to figure out who his dad is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, there's... That's, you can you can have, but there's these, the shootout with the pirates, right? Yeah, you know? yeah. It's just is that like, Jeff Goldblum? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. So uh, there's always there's always just kind of that one little pop of extreme. Even in the 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 Fox one, the Fantastic Mr. Fox, there's no pretty pretty blatant. They're eating their eating their food and breaking the chickens' necks, right? And all that kind of stuff. Th that's a good film if you just view it as take it as there. It's a mockery of society almost, yeah, like yeah. But uh, uh, but David Lynch is the second influence because I think David Lynch showed me that you can have ideas that are fucking nuts and not make any sense, and that is okay. And the thing that's great about him too is there was no softening of him over time. No, uh, I I ha was always aware of him. I grew up when Twin Peaks was like on TV. <laughs> I remember Blue Velvet. Uh, you know, I love the soundtrack to Lost Highway. 
Uh, but at one point, I forget, I think, I think it was Howard Stern. Uh, at some point, uh, I, I go to college. Uh, I went to UCF up in Orlando from 94 to 98. And uh, for whatever reason, Howard Stern was on the radio there. And at some point along the way, he was talking about transcendental meditation, um, how his mother was extremely depressed and having all these problems. And I've always been a, a, a heavy-hearted individual. I, I'm, I'm easily in my head, in a depression, in an anxious state. Being a, an attorney hasn't helped that at all. But uh, I, so I started getting into transcendental meditation. I started looking into it. And it's, it's an interesting thing because you actually go and you're taught it. But it, it's kind of weird. It was very in vogue in Hollywood. The Beatles all did it and all these things. But anyway, so Howard Stern introduced me to it. Well, the biggest advocate of TM is David Lynch. Yep. And he started a TM society trying to have it taught in schools, having it taught at prisons. And he's got these gorgeous videos, uh, speeches, so well thought out, well said, and so clear on what the process is and why it's important for artists, why it's important for just, just everybody. And that gave me a whole new appreciation for David Lynch because then going back through, the whole thing with the TM is kind of, removing all the garbage from your mind and letting it go where it naturally wants to go. And his movies are very much that. Like, there doesn't need to be a door there just because society says there should be a door there. Right, you know, right. maybe this person is walking on the ceiling or maybe this person is a midget and we're not going to explain why or this person, you know, whatever the thing may be. And it's so gorgeous because it removes, you know, we talked earlier about Lars von Trier and placing obstacles on filmmaking. David Lynch is some ways the, the opposite. He's like, I'm going to remove all the obstacles. You know, a linear plot, a, a hero, a villain. A, you know, these things are all gone now. And so, but yet it's still relatable to people. It's not so surreal that it's this crazy art film or something. Well, you know, those two, but you know, yeah, people still get drawn into. It. My favorite movie by him is actually Eraserhead. And that's the one I haven't seen. It is. Uh, I got to watch that one. I first saw it when I was on Mushrooms at 13. Yeah. And it just changed my life. And, and the sound design of it, and he just creates his own world, and it takes place in no time. You don't know what period it's yeah. in. And, and you know, David Lynch allows you to forget about the world. And you. that's why they have the – it's Lynchian. Yeah. It's a Lynchian He's created film. his own. It's his own universe, and it's his own feel. Yeah. But with the Transcendental Meditation – um. His best example that he that he talks about often is, you know, uh, everyday life you're thinking and you're just fishing in a little pond. Transcendental meditation allowed him to go deep sea fishing. Yeah. When you go deep sea fishing, you catch bigger fish, yeah. bigger ideas. Yeah. So it's all about delving deep into yourself to pull out those bigger ideas. And and I've been trying to do TM myself, and it's tough. It's tough to not have distractions. And uh, you know, I have a mantra I go through. Uh, synchronicity of the soul seeks you you know I, I repeat that over and over and i count one two one two three four one mm -hmm. two three four five as i focus on my breath so i'm using those three focus points to not think about anything and uh i've come back with some great insightful things and it's i'm definitely trying to do it more but you have to practice at it it's not easy for sure and 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 so one of the good memories that i have of my parents is in you know, in an effort to address their addiction, in an effort to address their, you know, mental states, we all took the class together. My dad, my mom, and I got to take the, so that was kind of one of the last things that we did together that I remember that I have a, you know, kind of a, a fond thinking about. And, uh, you know, it, it you know, pe different people have different views on TM. Some people think it's a, you know, crock of shit, crock of shit yeah, right and whatever, now. but, 
I mean, there's people that have done it through. I mean, you know, Howard Stern's done it throughout. Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. Oprah Winfrey. You know, uh, Russell Brand is a huge advocate of it. And so, uh, it's, especially for the artist, though, just letting your mind kind of go to that place that it doesn't go every day is is important. Um, so, what what does the future hold? What's what's what are you what are you looking at? What do you what's what do you hope to achieve? Where's your so right now I'm right now I'm I'm focused on getting uh, Lonesome Wolf done and, and doing the audio stuff. How and, long is that one? Uh, it's 25 minutes long. It's the longest film I've done so far. Okay. Um, and it's a huge undertaking. Um, I did a documentary on Tom DeGeorge called Two Weeks with Tom that I released online last Great month. Guy. I talked to him this morning. Yeah, I talk to him every day. I yeah. love that guy. And uh, it actually I got someone reached out to me with a distribution company. I can't say names just yet, That's but fine. they want to distribute it on amazon uh youtube bread and all that stuff so i'm i'm having to tweak and blur out some labels and that to get it distributed distributed um and then after that i have another short film i wrote last year that i want to film in december it's called survival it's gonna be black and white uh no dialogue just about one guy surviving in kind of a post-apocalyptic world and then i'm working on a documentary because my goal now is to do one short film and one documentary a year. I think okay. that's a good balance internally to have a selfish narrative that I've created and then tell a, a real-life story. But the documentary I'm going to be working on, uh, I'm going to start it on Father's Day, is actually about my father's battle with cancer. So three years ago when he was diagnosed, I started filming things, not knowing exactly how I was going to put it together. And uh, I, I got like two terabytes worth of footage that of him? I, of him, of him getting the first phone call. Oh, wow. Being told that it was cancer in his lungs, uh, stuff like that. And, you know, it was shot on a home movie camera, not my expensive camera. And it, it's just going to be a very raw look into the struggles with cancer, what he went through. Right. Not, not me, not what I went through, not what my family went through, what he went through. And just showing the actual moments of it coming back of, of all these things. And, you know, I've had this footage for two years now and I haven't been able to look at it. And oh. I think just now I just, I've sobered up. I was drinking real bad for a while. I haven't had any alcohol in months and stuff. And I think now I'm, I'm emotionally ready to delve into this documentary about him. And, uh, so that's going to be, that's my future goal is I will have a short film and then have this documentary about the, uh, it's going to be cancer, a home movie is oh, wow. the title of it. And, that's that's my main focus. You know, other jobs are going to come in. I get hired to do stuff all the time. But I'm not out here to be the best wedding videographer. Yeah. I'm not even out here to be the best music video director, the best photographer. I want to make films. And that's that's the future for me, right. is making these films. I set my goals. I write out the script. I do it. I don't write stuff and not do it. I just go out and uh, I get it done. And I already have another script ready for next year and, and, and stuff planned for next year. And it, my plans revolve around my filmmaking for sure do you have any kind of room in your life for someone else um you know it, it are you married do you have kids no I, i'm single and you know i've i've tried to date and stuff yeah. but it's tough when you have that strong my, vision. my focus star, yeah. is my focus and, and some people need more more attention than others and you know i'll be honest that i might not be the great person at giving the attention people need all the time because i'm focused on something else and i i've this quarantine has been a blessing for well, me, sure. actually. You don't have to answer many questions. About well, and, and <laughs> I, I can it's given me a chance to reflect on myself a lot. And yeah. I quit drinking during yeah. the, the quarantine and stuff. And uh, 
Congratulations. I, I, I went the other way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, you have the choice. I went the other way at first, yeah, too, yeah, and yeah, I realized it wasn't yeah, working. But, yeah. but now, you know, I, I, I'm able to focus on myself now and, and say, you know what, I am going to be selfish. But by doing that, I'm not going to try to bring someone else into my life right yeah. now. I'm well, just focused on my work. Yeah. I think that's a responsible way to be. You know, uh, you know I have a, a wife. I have a two-year-old. I have a six-year-old. And so that and this has made it so that I can't do these other things. And I'm okay with that. But, you know, it's important to it's important to be honest with yourself about what's important to you. So, you know, that's definitely. Yeah. Definitely and honest with the other people, too. You know, sure. that's it. For sure. Well, this was awesome. Oh, uh, yeah. It was that everything, it? That's it. But that's, uh, you come back next Friday if you <laughs> yeah, want. Right. The Friday after that, I have, you know, especially people like, you know, you, Gabe, uh, you know, Ray, some of these people I can just talk. Yeah, forever. we could have we could have been bullshit. We could have spent three hours <laughs> yeah. on, you know, Kubrick movies. But uh Anyway, I really appreciate you coming in. It was Absolutely. awesome to finally meet you. Uh, I look forward to, to talking to you again in the future. And Thank uh, you, man. Good luck to you. Thank you. All right.